The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. Welcome to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas, a podcast for people interested in exploring cutting-edge ideas and emerging trends that can transform health and healthcare. I'm your host, Lori Melliker, a Senior Program Officer at the Foundation and Pioneer Team Director. To see problems and opportunities in a completely new way is not something everyone's equipped to do, but it's a gift that all of our guests on today's episode share. Many of us are working hard to understand and fix what's wrong with the typical doctor's office visit. A physician named Tom Delbanco and a nurse named Jan Walker asked, what if patients could see their healthcare provider's notes? To find out, Delbanco and Walker started Open Notes a national initiative working to give patients access to the visit notes written by their doctors, nurses, or other clinicians with surprising results. We'll hear from them today about what they've learned and what's next, including ideas for an even more collaborative approach where patients and clinicians create visit notes together. We'll hear from Kirsten Lodel, who, along with her colleagues at an organization called LIFT, is asking, what if we ask those living below the poverty line what help they need. What if we put aside our assumptions about what needs to be done and began considering entirely new approaches? What if we were less didactic and more collaborative and integrated? We all know people who are living in a dream world who have all these crazy ideas that are out there and unrealistic. Well, what if today's dreamer is tomorrow's visionary? Princeton historian Keith Waylu rounds out today's episode with a discussion that might help us spot those visionaries earlier on and see how deeply held cultural narratives are influencing our perceptions of health in the present day. As my colleagues and I go around the country looking for innovative ideas and trends that can help us build a culture of health, we often find ourselves explaining that innovation doesn't just mean apps and other emerging technologies. In fact, for many of the ideas we support, the technology is beside the point. Many of the most powerful innovations actually represent simple yet profound shifts in perspective, helping us see problems in new ways and solutions in new places. These kinds of innovations can change culture and change the world. I think you'll really enjoy our conversations with these innovators. start with a conversation between the foundations Emmy Ganos and Tom Delbanco and Jan Walker, the minds behind the paradigm-shifting Open Notes, a national initiative that's getting patients and clinicians on the same page by inviting patients to read their visit notes. I feel like you're really tapping into this idea around transparency being a part of the culture and that we're kind of moving toward that direction so much more as a society, not just in medical care and in so many other ways. And so Open Notes really represents this kind of major culture change away from medical paternalism and toward transparency, partnering with patients, 
You know, the um, foundation talks about a culture of health these days. A lot of people are fascinated by that metaphor. And we, we talk about a really a culture of transparency, and transparency is a foundation for an awful lot of things, including a culture of health. Just got to communicate openly with those people who are involved, whether it's your minister, your school teacher, your postman, or your doctor or your nurse. And um, Open Notes is a wonderful platform, and that's, that's what excites us, and that's what appears to be exciting the world because we're stunned by the rate of adoption and the amount of interest in it. So in a lot of our work um, around improving the quality and efficiency of a healthcare system, we, we've heard from doctors and patients about the importance of relationships in delivering high-quality care that really puts patients' health at the center. I wonder if you can say more about how having access to visit notes changes the doctor-patient relationship. Open notes forces doctors, forces the caregiver, forces whoever's providing care to try and think a bit more actively through the patient's eyes. What will the patient be seeing when I dictate this note? What can I say to educate the patient? I think one of the common questions we get is, how do the notes change? And, and the scientific answer is we don't know. We didn't study them note by note. We haven't done before and after comparisons. But what we're told and what we perceive, and we hear anecdote after anecdote about this, is that they become more didactic. They teach more. They're directed more with the consciousness that there's a new set of eyes on this record, namely the patient, and also, very importantly, we should talk about that, the family member or some other partner looking at this. And, in fact, in our early thinking, we, we viewed open notes as a new medicine, which would help more people, hopefully, than it would hurt, and that it would be... Um, something that we and patients would learn to use better. We still think that way. But um, our thinking has really morphed in recent times to thinking of the note as part of the treatment, as part of the therapy. That was triggered by our most recent foray, which is into mental health notes. Um, we wrote a short think piece in JAMA basically saying it's time for behavioral medicine notes to also become open. They've been generally excluded from the... Um, from the repertoire, even though I, as a primary care doctor, spend about half of my time doing mental health work with patients. Mental health professionals have been nervous about it, and traditionally, there are many reasons for that. As we explored that, and as we talked about it, we really thought more and more about the note becoming part of the treatment, part of the therapy. I think one other way that patients' reading notes changes the relationship has to do with trust. And it's not the trust you think of where the patient trusts the clinician. It's the opposite. Because clinicians, when we started this study, told us that they were worried about what patients would do with this information, how they would perceive it, and how they would act upon it. And what, what has happened is that very little has happened. And, and because of that, I suspect that clinicians who are worried probably now trust their patients more, and they've learned that they can trust their patients with detailed information. Communication is a two-way street, and um, trust is at the hub of the wheel in many ways, and we are, are very interested in learning more about this. I'm really glad that you brought up this issue around kind of the tone and the content of notes when they're made available to patients. 
And I know, Jan, that you've written that there might be some some conditions that are more likely that physicians might alter the tone or content of their notes, particularly around um, mental health. Do you think that open notes has a, a role to play in reducing the stigma? Uh, and I'm particularly wondering if sharing notes can kind of help to break taboos around talking about these conditions. And that is one of our goals. We're, we're really fascinated by this mental health thing. I, I'm thrilled that our hospital is now carefully and um, going into opening mental health notes. We've been gratified, actually, by how leaders in the psychiatric field are very open to this. I think it's going to be a big transformation. And part of that, of course, really is saying that if your knee hurts or your mind hurts, we're going to treat transparency. We're going to treat you in the same way. And I think that will, in a quiet not easily measurable way, break down some of the stigma and some of the differences. You know, when you have open notes and behavioral notes are excluded, then you're carrying on this prejudice. But when you have open notes and behavioral notes are just part of the whole scene, that's different. We want to do an experiment with psychiatric patients at this hospital um, in which they read their clinicians' notes every day. The IRBs, the managers, are terrified of that. But the people I talk to who think deeply about this say, what a great idea, let's try it. There's a lot of prejudice, there's a lot of stigma, and it's got to come down, and I think we may be helping. One of the things that has come up as we have been talking with clinicians is that they think it may be better to describe behaviors in their notes rather than to label them. It's those labels that often get in the way and make people... I think that that issue of describing versus labeling is a really kind of key point. And then the role of sharing with caregivers or family members, I'd imagine that one might be much more willing to share information if it's, if it's in a describing language versus la- labeling language. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the other thing about describing rather than labeling is that the layperson understands better what you're talking about. I mean, labels carry all kinds of meanings and connotations and overtones sometimes, but if you're just talking about the behavior, it's much more clear to the person, who's, to, the, to the patient or the uh, family member who's reading about it. I love that you've described this not as a, a technological intervention, but really a, a cultural one. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what, what you've learned about working to change a fundamental long-held practice that's part of medical culture, which is that the, the notes are for the doctor and not for the patient. Um, what, what have you learned from that effort that could inform other um, much-needed efforts to change culture in medical care delivery? You know, one of my biggest surprises, pleasant surprises, is I was giving a talk with Dan at one of the competitor hospitals of Geisinger in Pennsylvania, and the head of quality came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I was just visiting Geisinger. You know what? Every doctor I talk to wears open notes as a badge of honor. They're proud to be part of it. I think, in terms of culture, it's going to make the doctor's life much more fun. I think it's going to bring us closer to those whom we serve, and God knows we need to be. It'll enrich our relationships. And I also think that it will offload some work from doctors over time. We are now beginning to talk about something called our notes rather than open notes in which we invite patients to really participate actively in 
generating records and carrying through plans. 30% of the patients in our study said they wanted to be able to approve a note before it was signed. 60% said they wanted to be able to change a note in some way. So the logical extension of that is why shouldn't the patient go to work? Why shouldn't he or she prepare some of the material before I see the patient? Why shouldn't the patient then be on a pretty level playing field with me in the office? And why shouldn't we agree together on a plan afterwards and then monitor together a new kind of measure of quality of care? We're fascinated by that notion. It's built again on transparency. It's now an active intervention rather than a passive intervention, which at some level really open notes is. And again, it's a foundation for a culture of health that really has enormous potential. That's what's racing our motor right now, and that's where we want to move to next. That's fascinating. Steve Downs at the foundation helped us in one respect a lot early on. He said, keep it simple. You know, at one level, we just flicked a switch. It wasn't a complicated, multifaceted, variegated intervention. All we did was open up the doctor's notes. And then that did it. We're supposed to not talk about disruptive innovation anymore after reading the New Yorker recently. <laughs> right, but, right. Um, but but um, that's the simple thing that we did, and out, and out of that came a cascade, which is just beginning and warming up. We think we're still at the Model T stages of what open notes means or what transparency means. But um, I would say that begin simply. Don't get too fancy in the beginning. And also remember always when you try and make change, and it's got to be something that can be built easily into the fabric of the institution or of the practice or of the person's life, whatever it is. It can't be external. It can't be imposed. It has to feel organic to them. These principles that you've discussed are just so important um, to consider as we think about all of the different changes that are happening in medical care right now. It really feels like a, a train racing forward and... There are some things that just have that, that synergy of being simple, um, having the, the capacity to, to improve the relationship between physicians and patients while also making things simpler and more efficient rather than creating more work. I think these are the kinds of principles that we are, are trying to keep in mind as we're looking out for the, the right sorts of projects to, to be working on. I have one question for you that's actually asking you to look a little bit outside of the healthcare system. If you could change one deep health practice or belief outside of healthcare that would help to spur us as a nation toward a culture of health, what do you think that would be? That's a very interesting question. Well, I guess if I could wave my magic wand, it would be wonderful if somehow we could spread the responsibility for health. I think too many of us think our clinicians are in charge of our health our freedom from disease, and what I would like to do is spread the responsibility for health beyond the healthcare system. The healthcare system is good. I hope that it gets better, but um, there are so many other parts of our lives that contribute to our well-being. Um, our communities are certainly a big one. Um, our environment is one. I think the fundamental change is that all of us as individuals need to be more aware of all the things that make a difference in our health and the health of those around us. In many of our kind of transparency projects that we've been working on, we, we've learned that opening one door can lead to a whole new set of opportunities for greater transparency. 
um, and into getting patients and consumers more involved in their care. So now that Open Notes has opened this door, uh, we wonder how you see Open Notes evolving um, over time. Well, I think the next really important step is to take patients and their families beyond just reading their notes and make them uh, make them more engaged in their care via their notes. And we're talking about having medical records evolve from the place they are now, which is they are the quote-unquote official record of care that is maintained by uh, clinicians or institutions, and making that record co-owned, so to speak, or at least co-generated so that patients also have input into that note. We think medical records will be unrecognizable in the future. We, we think of really a, a trip, a voyage from womb to tomb, if you will, that um, little kids will learn how to document what they're doing in terms of with respect to their health and their behaviors. And they will do it transparently with their parents, with their teachers, with their friends, with the world. Look how transparent this world is coming. Look how social media will impact all of this. And that there will be a travelogue through to one's last days in which people will become patients, in which doctors and nurses and other health professionals will dip in and out, in which families, loved ones, um, informal, formal caregivers will have different and variable roles depending on what's going on, but that it will be an open book. It will be shared. We haven't talked about privacy. We haven't talked about some of these fascinating issues it brings up, but it will be a very different world in the future, and we do think that open notes is kind of giving people a, a peek into it. It's the first glimmer that this kind of transparency, this kind of approach to things, while it's passive now, it just opens an enormous amount of possibilities the future. That's what really excites us. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and to um, share your perspective with our podcast listeners. You asked some tough questions, Emmy, and it was fun talking to you. made us think. Thank you, Emmy. It has been a pleasure. If you're interested in learning more about Open Notes and other ways that RWJF is working to transform patients' encounters with healthcare providers, go to rwjf.org/podcast. That's rwjf.org/podcast. The observation that Jan made about the holistic factors that affect our health is the perfect segue to our next segment: a conversation with Kirsten Lodel, CEO and co-founder of an organization called Lift. Lyft operates resource centers in six cities to help those living in poverty gain economic stability and well-being. They recognize poverty as an issue with causes and effects in all areas of a person's life, including health. As Kirsten says, Health issues drive people into poverty and crisis, and poverty makes people sicker. And it is a vicious cycle that is completely interconnected. When families come in to see us, they are so overextended by just what it takes to even try to get themselves help, what it takes to be living in crisis, to be living in a home that's in foreclosure, to have lost your job, to be battling a health issue. 
And that stress becomes all-consuming. So part of what we have the opportunity to do in our work is to help to provide an antidote to that stress by simplifying things for people. Simplifying things for people. There's that concept again, simplicity. Like opening up a doctor's notes, making people's lives more simple so they can reduce stress may give them a better chance to thrive. Of course, executing a simple idea isn't necessarily easy. In fact, it can be rather complex. But the idea itself, the shift in perspective, is simple, profoundly so. Let's hear more from Kirsten, who recently sat down with my colleague Susan Mende, a senior program officer here at the Foundation. I think that um, many of us, if we admit it to ourselves, hold cultural biases when it comes to poor people. And it seems that in many respects you're actually working to change the culture around poverty, not, as some would say, the culture of poverty. So what have you learned about that, that's worked about trying to change established cultures the fact is that we all have tremendous bias that we bring into this work. And that's not a value judgment. I mean, that's as much as anything a neurological fact. You know, we, we have unconscious bias baked in to our neuropathways as a survival mechanism. And I think one of the places where we can get really tripped up in trying to change culture is by blaming people that we perceive to be at the other ideological end of the spectrum for being responsible for all of the bias in the system. I think the harder and more dangerous feeling thing to do is to recognize that we have a lot of our own cultural assumptions and biases that have gotten in the way of our ability to have impact including the way in which we've built very different approaches and systems to support poor people than we've built for the middle class and the upper class. And that, you know, that, that happens for all sorts of reasons, often because of our best intentions of wanting to save people, feeling that we want to swoop in and deliver on a silver platter the program that will be the magic bullet that rescues people. Well, that's not how life works. You know, people, their communities, that's what saves people. It's not any one program or intervention. And I think we have to acknowledge that with humility because that will allow us to put the person, not the program, at the center of how it is that we design solutions going forward. Can you tell me what's different about the experience when a person comes into Lyft than when they come into another social service, if you will, agency? Well, for one thing, uh, we call that person a member as opposed to a client. And that's a change that we made realizing that client portrays someone as needy, whereas member portrays someone as having gifts and skills and being a part of something. The language that we use is so critical as the foundation of how then we practice. Another thing is that we focus a huge amount on how we greet people, how we build rapport with them. In fact, we've broken down that process into 29 different observable elements that we train on, that we give feedback on, and that we think are essential. So we're, we're thinking about how it is from moment one 
you convey a sense of dignity and respect and infuse people with an immediate boost of confidence because that's so much of what will keep people pursuing their goals, keep them coming back, and will ultimately help them recapture their hope in a way that lets them become the primary advocate for their own families. Many times when we work with people in poverty, um, we take a very siloed approach to helping them. Mm -hmm. We find that services trying to deal with education, with health, with housing, and with finances of the poor are rarely connected to each other. And the result of that is that sometimes uh, we, we hear feedback from people that being poor is really a full-time job, just trying to navigate this maze of services. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us a bit about how we can start to address this? We have constructed social services programs in this country that treat fundamentally interconnected issues completely independently of one another. So we tend to not talk about a health issue in the same conversation as talking about someone's employment situation, their housing situation, their childcare situation, all the things that we know in our own lives are fundamentally interconnected. And so if we could map our services to meet people where they are in that way, we would be able to save people from the unbelievable time and psychological burden of having to access all of the support that they need in often dozens of different places. People's lives are like rivers. They flowed before coming into contact with us, and they will flow after having contact with us. And so the opportunity that we have, the privilege that we have, is of most positively affecting the trajectory and the velocity of that flow. But if we forget that, if we get too swept up in having to own everything that happens in a person's life or take credit for it, or we think that programs, not people, are what matter most, then we won't build the best solutions because we won't build solutions that provide people with the support they need to navigate the flow of that river over the long term. This really is about a lot more than any one program. In fact, it's, it's even about culture change much more broadly. Culture exists way upstream of policy change. So if we can focus on how it is that we create a culture of health in this country, how we create a culture of dignity and of respect and how it is that we deliver health and human services, we will change policy and we will change practice. There's no question about that in my mind. To learn more about Lyft, visit rwjf.org slash podcast. I was struck by Kirsten's emphasis on the subtle biases inherent in our culture. It may be true that we can't avoid having these neural pathways set, but it seems crucial that all of us, especially those of us working to create social change, recognize these biases so that they don't get in the way of our doing good. As our next guest, Princeton historian Keith Whaley reminds us, the constructs and frameworks we take for granted today, the ones that shape how we think, communicate, and behave around health, can shift radically in the future as new ideas and information emerge.
By the way, our conversations with Kirsten and Keith were recorded as part of the Foundation's What's Next Health? Conversations with Pioneers series of talks with leading thinkers. To see video of the incredible guest in this series, go to rwjf.org slash podcast. Now let's listen to Keith Waylu in conversation with my colleague, Steve Downs, RWJF's Chief Technology and Information Officer. Keith, you're, you're a, a historian of science and, and medicine, and one of the things you've studied is culture, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the role that culture plays in shaping perceptions and ultimately behaviors around health. As a historian, I'd say that I have the privilege of taking the long view and of looking at how different things that we associate with health play into one another. So on the one hand, you have new scientific understandings, you have new technologies of diagnosis, and then you have changing ideas about disease. And one of the things that I do is I'm always interested in how the things that we associate with science, medicine, technology intersect with culture, politics, and society to shape what we call health and to shape the ways in which we intervene. So whether it's anorexia nervosa and how ideas about diet connect to health through ideas about girls and ideal body image. These are the kinds of things that I focus on because of course intervening to improve health is not just a question of doing better laboratory science. It's ultimately a question about how you communicate uh, in society more generally. And, and I imagine that one of the things as a historian is you can look at something that's playing out you know, um, in the present and say, wait, I think I've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things you've mentioned is sort of uh, uh, the propensity in societies to put a lot of hope around quick technological fixes. And I wonder if you could elaborate on, on that. Well, I think that we live in a society that's infatuated with innovation, with technological marvels. And this has always been the case. Insulin in the treatment of diabetes, the rise of dialysis. But as a historian, you ultimately do get a chance to see how that initial glow and enthusiasm surrounding what a new form of intervention could do plays itself out and ultimately produces a new set of challenges in its wake so that insulin is a good example of something that unquestionably transformed the life of diabetics but ultimately expanded the life of the diabetic and produced a longer life for the diabetic. Uh, it did not eradicate the disease but it also created a whole set of new questions. Who's going to pay? What are the costs of care? What does it mean to have a group of people who are living longer and putting new demands on our society? So as a historian, you're able to actually look at this story play itself out. And so when you see a new promise emerging, you know to expect that this is perhaps only the first chapter in a story, that there will be a second chapter and a third chapter. That's one of the things I think a historical perspective brings to a careful understanding of culture and health. So I, I'd love to, for you to take that perspective and then think about you know, an entrepreneur or an innovator mm -hmm. today who you know, maybe has a better mousetrap and, and has an exciting mm -hmm. way uh, to try to bring about change. And I don't think your message is, yeah, it's not going to make a difference. How might they integrate 
that perspective into how they think about you know, the work ahead for them. Yeah, in, in some ways what I'm saying is that I have less of a message for the innovator or the entrepreneur and more for those who are thinking about the world that comes in the wake of innovation and being prepared for it. That is to say that let the innovation happen, let the entrepreneur do his or her work, and let us, instead of being surprised at the world that emerges in its wake, that we should be prepared for there being a next chapter. So in your book, How Cancer Crossed the Color Line, uh, there's an interesting subplot about the role of data, how limitations uh, in the data that were available led to a misunderstanding of the epidemiology of cancer. And over time, both the data changed and in some ways the interpretations um, mm -hmm. of the data changed. Can you talk about the importance of data in, in how society understands health and perhaps I would uh, maybe even ask the power dynamics associated with data? Mm -hmm. So um, the question of what is the evidence base that is necessary to properly understand the health challenges of society is always been a question for us. Um, in 100 years ago, the evidence base was largely that of the insurance industry. And, and, but you know, the insurance industry had all of the information necessary to understand mortality trends. The problem was that they were looking at people who were purchasing life insurance. In a world where 80% of African Americans still lived in the rural South, they never made it into the the regime of collecting data at the time. Much of the story about how cancer crossed the color line is the story of how those people who were outside of what Lewis Dublin, the statistician at MetLife called the insurance experience, gradually over the course of decades migrated into the insurance experience so that their health experiences could be tabulated, chronicled, and subjected to the same kind of data oriented analysis that the health of others were. So in some ways, the story of how disease trends change is inseparable from the story of how we gather data. By the mid part of the 19th century, we're gathering data uh, not through only life insurance records, but through the US Public Health Service. And later on, we start to track things like survival, not just mortality or incidence. So in some ways, every regime of data gathering produces its own narrative, and it's important to us for us to kind of think, to think carefully about not just what the data says, but also what it doesn't say, what other kinds of data are out there, or other ways of thinking about the data so, so to me, you know, the, the, the heroes of my story are the ones who have both appreciated the power of big data, but also understand that data can lead one astray, and that there may be hidden stories in that evidence that ought to be developed. So if we then <coughs> go to today's context and, and the, the, the years and decades to unfold, mm -hmm. you have sort of the digitization of everything. And, and mm -hmm. so we are now awash in data. Um, and the parallel that comes to mind is, is uh, if you ever watch reality shows, you'll know right. that one of the credits is the story editor. Mm -hmm. you know, so you're filming all of this stuff, but then somebody is creating a narrative from all the, the extant sources of, of data, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. you will. Um, I guess you could argue that going uh, forward, as more and more data become available, the curation, the editing, the, the creation of a narrative around that data becomes uh, more of an editorial opportunity right. uh, for people. Yeah. So one of the themes that uh, I find myself interested in is what are the lives within the data? That is to say, what are the people whose experiences are often shrouded or concealed because of our infatuation with data? 
Um, and that's been a theme that I've been followed, I've been following through much of my career. That is to say that, you know, our concern with aggregate trends is an important one in tracing the kind of the shifting demographics of health in our country. But to understand what health actually means involves actually putting the, the data aside and thinking about lives and thinking about individuals and thinking about what these trends mean on the individual level. One of the things in your work that comes across is the importance of cultural narratives and, and to the degree to which new science or understanding emerges, it takes root most when it resonates with already deeply held cultural narratives. Mm -hmm. As you look around today and you think about what are the cultural narratives that shape perceptions of health, um, what do you see as those that are most important? Probably one of the enduring ideals in American health in general is the belief in, 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 in personal empowerment. The idea that I hold within you know, my own hands, the ability to safeguard my own health. It underpins breast self-examination. It underpins the ability of the diabetic to provide insulin for him or herself to safeguard themselves. It underpins prevention. It underpins why we eat, what we eat, when we eat, and how much we eat. One of the problems with this belief, however, is that it too has a kind of an overstated quality, right? It, in the sense that, you know, Health is purely a matter of individual ability, individual choice, individual decision making. So on the one hand, the question for me is how do you harness this belief, harness this idea that, that we all have the power to affect our own health, but to also not allow that to obscure the fact that our health behaviors and practices and our very health is determined by, by things that we have no control over. Could you explain your thoughts about how people adopt or develop their own culture around health. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the term culture is often um, a term that we use for other people. Other people have culture and we don't. Or culture is a kind of a freighted category. When I was teaching in the medical school at Chapel Hill, I would ask my students, where did you learn your health practices? And I remember one year we were doing this exercise and most students were talking about how their parents had shaped their behaviors and attitudes towards health. And we had a student who was a student from Korea who shook his head and he said, you know, in America, you all talk about your parents being the determining factor. But where I come from in Korea, the reason why you, wouldn't, you would go to school, regardless of how sick you were, has to do with what he effectively called kind of social pressure from his classmates, that for him, though the, the society's expectations were far more important than his parents' expectations of him. The reason why we do this is to get students to understand that, as you say, our views about health don't just come out of nowhere. Our views about the role of individual initiative, uh, about how we should be taken care of when we're ill, or how we expect others to behave, are things that are nurtured and developed in childhood. And our parents themselves had gone through that process as well. So rather than thinking about health as something that's individualized, it's useful to think about it as moving through generations. One generation handing to another a set of expectations that I, as a child, have to rethink and revise as I look to my own children and, and what expectations I will have for them about how they should behave when they're, when they're ill or how they should maintain their own health. The key for us, however, is to be aware that in the here and now, there are dominant frameworks for thinking about 
what health is. And there are people who are working at the edges or contrarians who are laying the groundwork, perhaps slowly, um, for a future for how we should think about these problems. It's a little abstract, but the point is that um, we should be open to the awareness of this diversity of opinion and that what looks like a crank or a crackpot, actually, it, with the passage of time, is, uh, is going to be seen as the visionary. It's almost having the discipline to say, they may be a crackpot, but what if they were right? Right. You know, and, and what yeah. would that imply and, and what would we have to do? And one of, the, one of the interesting things about the history of science and medicine is that it, it is made up of such individuals. That is to say, the luminaries, people like, oh, I'll just use an example, like Barbara McClintock, who during the 19th, you know, the first part of the 20th century into the mid 20th century was working on corn genetics. When, in a time when no one was working on core genetics. Um, you know, E. coli and a wide range of other kind of, you know, bacteria were the place you, you went to study genetics. But she was doing some amazing work that only she understood in some ways, and she was communicating with scholars who regarded her as purely on the periphery. It's only after geneticists had sort of exhausted what they could learn from the tools of the day, and they're thinking about genetics um, RNA, DNA, and their relationship evolved, that they could then look back on Barbara McClintock's work and say, you know what, she was showing us something that she was able to see because she was using corn and because she was so deeply schooled in understanding corn genetics that we could never have seen had we stayed working with these tools. So th the history of medicine and history of science is just replete with such examples of, of, you might say, shifts in what Thomas Kuhn had called paradigms, mm -hmm. but how the paradigm shift allows you to then look back and to see innovation in a, a new. And so for me, this is kind of ingrained in how you think about knowledge. That is to say, knowledge always shifts in this fashion or often shifts in this fashion. That it's, it's unusual. There's, there's very few instances in which you have this kind of straightforward linear progression of thinking uh, in terms of any one health problem or any um, you know, social problem. It speaks to the importance of having you know, people from very different perspectives, different mm -hmm. fields, all taking different kinds of looks mm -hmm. at, at the same problem. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm a, I've always been part of multidisciplinary enterprises. Um, when I taught in the medical school, I was in a faculty with uh, clinicians, but also sociologists, anthropologists, historians, and health economists. And the goal was to teach students about social and cultural issues in, in medical practice. And it, we, all, we all needed to be there because the complexity of healthcare is, was not, is not easily reduced to you know, laboratory findings translated into clinical practice. It's a messy world and it takes a lot of uh, thinkers to really uh, understand it clearly. You heard Steve and Keith talk about the importance of remaining open to a diversity of opinions. I hope you enjoyed listening to the diverse perspectives in today's episode of RWJF's Pioneering Ideas podcast. More importantly, I hope today's episode introduced you to some ideas that will expand your own thinking about what it takes to build a culture of health. And here's another place to go for inspiration. 
The Foundation recently awarded the RWJF Culture of Health Prize to six communities for their trailblazing efforts to work across sectors and build diverse partnerships to promote healthier living. To learn more about these innovators and to get ideas for your own community, go to rwjf.org podcast. I'd really love to hear what you think about the ideas that you heard in today's episode. If you're on Twitter, I hope you'll tweet me at Lori Melliker. That's L-O-R-I-M-E-L-I-C-H-A-R. Share your thoughts about what you've heard today or in previous episodes of this podcast. And let me know, what's a big what if that you're wondering about? If you aren't on Twitter, no problem. Just post a comment at rwjf.org slash podcast. Thanks so much to those of you who have been sending us your ideas and comments. And thanks to all of you for listening and being part of our community that's working together to build a culture of health. We'll be back with more soon. 